Good morning. You may be seated. So as Matt said earlier, Seth is in France on a missions trip, and he'll be able to traveling back um, tomorrow. So I have the privilege and opportunity of continuing where Seth left off last week in Luke chapter 13. Our passage will be Luke 13, 10 through 17, but we're going to take a step back and we're going to reread the parable of the fig tree. So if you don't have a Bible and the Bible's in the seats, it is page 872. Luke chapter 13, verse number 6. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if I should... Be- Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. We come to verse number 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger? And lead it away to water it. And not not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your message of the gospel in this passage your freeing power from sin and sickness, God. I pray that we would see where we fail to understand the gospel and repent. God, give us wisdom, give us ears to hear the word of your truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, last week as Seth started off in Luke chapter 13, Um, verses 1 through 9, we heard Jesus say to the people, repent or perish. So Luke chapter 13, verse number 5, it says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then as we read earlier, we had the opportunity to see this parable of the fig tree that was barren. And Seth challenged us that if we were going to enjoy life eternally, it begins with living a daily life of repentance. And so we pose the quote by Martin Luther, which said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of the believers to be one of repentance. 
So we looked at what repentance was and what repentance was not. And we learned that repentance is a change of mind that leads us to redirect our affections of our heart that results in a change of actions. So it's not only just changing our mind about how we view sin. In changing that, we change the affections of our heart. Our affections now go to God. And then it's not just the one time our action changed, but it's an ongoing process of our actions changing. So repentance together with this faith that we talked about is the proper response to God's gracious gospel that we're going to see here in this narrative of Luke. Repentance is the result of God's merciful and gracious regeneration of a fruitless heart as seen through the parable of the fig tree and what we'll, we'll see through this narrative of this woman who is healed. So with this understanding of repentance and the idea of changing our mind and our actions to become more like Christ, we come to our passage today in Luke. So our passage today is right in the midst of several parables. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God and he's, he's talking to the people, his disciples, people around him about the kingdom of God and he's speaking to them in parables and Luke stops right here in the midst of all these parables and points out an event, this narrative of the healing of this woman that is unique to Luke. Matthew's gospel doesn't mention it. Mark's gospel doesn't mention it. John's gospel doesn't mention it. It's the only place where the story is recorded in the Bible. But Luke, this physician, this person who is trained in medicine and healing, he stops here to point out this miraculous healing and saving power of Jesus. And we get to see a glimpse of the power of the great physician and Jesus Christ and his healing power. I can only imagine that this event must have had a life-changing impact on Luke. It talks about in the Gospels how when Christ is talking to Peter and he says, whom do people say that I am? And they talk about who the people say. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And in that moment, there's this realization. I imagine at this point, Luke is having a similar realization as he sees his practice of healer, physician, portrayed in Jesus Christ through this woman while Jesus is talking about the healing power of his kingdom. Through this passage here in Luke, we see Jesus in the gospel brings freedom, celebration, and God-exaltation, while the law brings slavery, condemnation, and self-exaltation. Ray Ortland poses this quote, Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace. When the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, the church will be powerful. But there are no shortcuts to getting there. Without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine will seem pointless. 
So that brings us to our passage here in Luke chapter 10, or Luke chapter 13, verse number 10. And we're going to see how these two sides pose, the gospel and the law. Now he was teaching on the in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And the Greek would have read something like, and he continued teaching. So these parables that he's teaching about, it would appear that this is not a separate occasion. He's just continuing his teaching and Luke's stopping to share a narrative that's happening during his teaching. So now as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, So it points out that this is his custom. He's continually teaching. He's teaching about the kingdom of God to these people, trying to get them to understand. And there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. This disabling spirit, Luke, the physician, doesn't go into great detail over what this ailment is. There's some debate among theologians and commentaries of whether, what this disabling spirit is, whether it's demon oppression or demon possession. But I would suggest that it's probably similar to what we see in Job, where Satan is requiring Job and God allows him to be given over to sickness and pain and suffering for Job's good and ultimately for God's glory. So this woman here has come and she's under this sickness. It's not a case of demon possession. This sickness, this disability has been appointed by God for this woman's good and for his glory. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So if you picture this, um, they give the idea of a medical definition that her muscles and her ligaments were so contracted that she was completely bent over that she could not even stand upright at all. She couldn't even bend her head to look up to the heaven. So she was constantly in a posture of humiliation, bent over to the ground. So as you think about that, imagine the pain physically, Imagine the pain emotionally. Imagine the humiliation that that must have been. I mean, I'm sure everyone can think of someone that they've seen. And we teach our kids, you know, when we see someone that's different, not to point or not to look. But inevitably, we see someone that's different than us and we can't help but look back because they're different, right? And so, you can imagine that she was probably the object of jokes, humiliation, that she suffered physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Just imagine this person coming to the synagogue, desiring to look up and pray to God, and she's constantly bent over. She was there though, not to be healed. It appears that this was her custom that she would go to synagogue. So she had come not to be healed, but to worship God. I believe that she probably, from the context, she believed that she could be healed by God, but she was there solely to worship God. She was there to worship 
Imagine what she must have been thinking after hearing the parable of the fig tree. So if you think back, she had probably been there, standing there, and she had heard this parable of this fig tree, this barren tree that this person had said in the parable was good for nothing, tear it down. Imagine the thoughts that must have been going through her head. This, this woman who for all rights probably didn't have a job, probably couldn't support herself. Physical pain, emotional pain, coming to worship and hearing this message of this fig tree and the emotions that must have gone through her head of, am I this worthless fig tree? And it says in verse number 12, when Jesus saw her, here we see Jesus look. Just imagine the look of compassion. She wasn't coming, rushing, as other people talked about, to touch Jesus, yelling, heal me, heal me. She was there to worship him. So imagine the look as Jesus made eye contact with her, probably due to her disability, back of the room, trying to be unnoticed. And when Jesus saw her, he called. Imagine your sickest moment coming to see Jesus. Imagine the feeling of being called out by him. He called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. He says, woman, you are freed. You are loosed. The chains are gone. The disability is no more. But he doesn't just stop there. It's not a matter of just his words and his gaze. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight. He makes eye contact with her. He personalizes it. He talks to her, his voice, and then he touches her. Just picture it. Imagine your sickest moment. Imagine being chained by something. Imagine being chained to something, and then all of a sudden Jesus touch, and you're free. The, this infirmity, this spirit that had bound her 18 years was immediately healed by Jesus. This wasn't some gradual, Jesus touched her and she started to be made well. Her muscles loosened, she stood upright, and she was healed. This was a radical display of power, grace, and mercy something made only possible by the great physician. And we see her response then. And she glorified God. This wasn't a, she was so excited about being healed and look, I can stretch and showing off to the people. Her response was immediately to give praise to the great physician. She knew this was only something that God could do. She was filled with thankfulness for his mercy. I imagine that she had tried everything possible to be healed. I imagine that she had probably spent money or had people spent money to see physicians such as Luke. 
looking for a cure for this and had found none. 18 years dealing with this pain. And then in the words and touch of Jesus, she's healed. And her immediate response in his healing power is to glorify God. And then we come to the opposition in verse number 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. So this man, this ruler of the synagogue, it's probably a group of men there. And this one guy decides that he's going to stand up and speak for the group. He's indignant. He's exasperated. He's outraged that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And the crazy thing about it was he wasn't outraged in the context that Jesus, because of the healing, but he was outraged because the honor had been taken away from him. He was no longer the ruler of the synagogue. He was no longer the focus of the people. Jesus, the great physician, the healer, was their focus. And so he was exasperated. He was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. See, the law actually allowed physicians to do acts of mercy and healing on the Sabbath day. And this wouldn't have gone unnoticed by Luke. But only in a case of emergency. There was rule after rule and law after law of what would have constituted a physical emergency for a physician to actually practice on the Sabbath. And so he's saying in his indignance, is this, is this woman who has come here 18 years, is this an emergency that you take the glory and honor away from me and bring it to God? So he said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. Here we see this ruler of the synagogue passive-aggressively attack Jesus. He won't confront Jesus, but he's going to attack the people about what Jesus has done. And he's, he's saying, don't you know? Don't you know that on any of these six other days you can come and be healed? But not on the Sabbath. They had made the Sabbath an excuse for laziness. They had put the Sabbath, instead of honoring God and giving God exaltation, they had made it about them. It was a place of honor for them that they could speak and proclaim the Bible and the law and how good they were. And he's, he's saying, don't you know any of these other days? Don't take honor away from me. Why do you come on the Sabbath day? They had forgotten the meaning of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not made for rest and laziness. The Sabbath was made to glorify God and do acts of mercy. The Sabbath was meant to rest in God. Jesus was in reality providing rest for this woman. She was, he was providing rest from the curse of sin, rest from sickness. He was providing freedom. In verse number 15, Jesus answers, Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, you imposters, you actors, 
Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie? Does he not loose? Does he not free his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? See, they allowed for work on the Sabbath day as long as it benefited them. They viewed watering their animals and taking them to water as acts of mercy. And how dare they even withhold water from an animal and allow it to suffer. But yet, they didn't want this woman to be loosed from her bond on the Sabbath day because it gave honor to Jesus. See, they had built up all these laws and rules for even how they could untie their animals, how they could lead them to water, all these ridiculous things such as you can draw water and pour it for the animal and allow it to drink, but you can't draw water and allow it to drink out of what you've drawn it from. You can lead an animal to water, but you can't tie animals together and lead them to water. They had, made, they had forgotten about the meaning of the Sabbath. They had been tied to the law, and they had forgotten that the law was for was made and the Sabbath was made to find rest and freedom in God. And he says in verse 16, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, so he points out, and not this woman, this person of value, he's called her out, should not this person of value in comparison to an irrational animal? And then he goes on, and he brings it up a notch. He describes her as a daughter of Abraham. So it's not just this person of value, but they would have heard this phrase, especially these rulers of the synagogue, a daughter of Abraham, a descendant of a Jew. They, they prided themselves. This was a title specifically called for reverence and honor. She was a doubtlessly a good woman, a spiritual spiritual worshiper of the God of Israel. He was pointing out that she was their sister, their neighbor. Earlier in Luke, he had talked about who is your neighbor and had posed this whole question about who my neighbor was and how I should treat people with loving acts of mercy and kindness. And he was pointing out to them, should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, someone that you would call sister, someone who that you should consider her, your neighbor whom Satan bound for 18 years be loosed from this bond. Should she not be set free? Should she not be released from the oppression of Satan, sickness, and sin on the Sabbath day? If not, what was the Sabbath meant for? The Sabbath was meant to bring glory to God. And in verse 17, we see, And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. So this idea of being put to shame, they were humiliated, they were mortified, they were cut down. But as Seth talked about with acts of repentance last week and the fig tree, we don't see any repentance we see that they were humiliated 
They were put to shame, but this shame does not bring them to repentance. This shame does not bring them to God, but it brings condemnation upon them. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done by him. So the people saw it. This woman saw it. She glorified God. They rejoiced. They celebrated in the freedom that Jesus provided in the gospel. They celebrated God's work among them through Jesus. So as we look at this passage, I'd like to show the two sides that he's trying to show in this narrative. So this passage highlights Jesus and the gospel bring freedom, celebration, and God exaltation. The law brings slavery, condemnation, and self-exaltation. So we have these two opposing ideas. We have the gospel over here and the law over here. And Jesus points out in this narrative that Luke gives us that this gospel, it brings freedom. Be loosed. Be free. Where the law brings slavery. The law brings you're tied to sin and sickness. You're shackled to the death to death in the grave. Sin's curse rules over you. But through the gospel, we can have freedom. We can have freedom over sin. We can have freedom over sickness. We can have freedom over death through Christ. The gospel brings celebration. We see this woman, she immediately glorified God. Imagine it. Whatever it is in your life that's plaguing you, it's bringing you down, maybe it's sin, maybe it's sickness, maybe it's just living in a fallen world. And Jesus comes and he takes that from you. Imagine the power of it. Imagine the celebration that should come. But we see here these rulers of the synagogue, it just brought condemnation. They were put to shame. The gospel brings God exaltation. The gospel brings us to the point where we realize that we are completely hopeless without the work of Christ. And Christ points that out in this parable here where he shows us that this woman who had been bound 18 years was loosed, freed by the words and touch of Jesus Christ where the law brings self-exaltation. So I was stu- as I was studying this, and I'm trying to think about how the gospel and the law, and how freedom versus slavery, and it's a very foreign concept in my mind, and I think it's a very foreign concept to most of us, because for all matters, we tend to think of ourselves as completely free. I, I don't think any of us in this room have ever felt any bond of what we consider slavery. And so we trick ourselves into believing the lie that Satan gives us that even we're not slaves to sin. And so we shortchange the gospel and believe in other gospel. So I was studying this. I was looking through people who had actually 
experienced oppression and slavery just to kind of get an idea of what their mindset was, the freeing reality of those chains or that oppression being gone. And I'd just like to share a couple quotes before we read some scripture. One man expressed it this way, I did not know I was a slave until I found out I could not do the things I wanted. Another man put it this way, for to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. You cannot separate peace from freedom because no one can be at peace unless he has freedom. And we see this perfectly played out in the gospel. We were slaves to sin, dead just like this woman was a slave to this infirmity. And Jesus comes and in through his saving power reaches out and touches us and immediately we're children of God. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to the flesh, but through love serve one another. 1 Peter 2.16 Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Ephesians 2 explains how we were dead in our sin, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." Later on in the chapter, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul talks about it in Romans, the struggle of him wanting the things that he wants to do, he couldn't do. And the things that he doesn't want to do, he does because of sin. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So he comes to this realization that in the law, this law that he had built up, this law that we see here, that it only can bring condemnation. It can only bring slavery to death. 
And so we come to this point in 1 Corinthians where he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. You shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of, a, in the, of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So we come to this point, and we have the gospel and the law, and we see the opposing pull on our life. And J.C. Ryle states it this way, The man who does not glory in the gospel can surely know little of the plague that sin is within him. This woman that had been bound 18 years, she knew in reality the plague of sin, the plague of sickness. She was bound. She dealt with it physically. She dealt with it emotionally. I'm sure at some level she dealt with it spiritually. So as we look at this, do you find yourself finding freedom in the gospel? Or do you feel burdened by sin? Is there this realization of coming to the cross of Jesus and what he's done and minimizing the cross like the Pharisees, either by saying I'm good enough by all these things and exalting self, or beating yourself up and saying, I'm not good enough. No, you're not good enough, but through Christ you are. And Jesus and the gospel bring freedom, celebration, and God exaltation. So if you're not finding freedom in the gospel, I would challenge you to think if you're believing another gospel if, you're not, if your life is not marked by celebration and what the gospel is doing in you, I would challenge you to think about whether you're believing another gospel. If your life isn't marked by God exaltation and what the gospel is doing, I would challenge you to think about whether you're believing another gospel. So we come back to that quote by Ray Ortland. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. So this idea of freedom, this idea of celebration in Jesus, this idea of God exaltation promotes a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace. 
When the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, mark that. If we're living in a culture that's promoted by the gospel, our culture here should be beautiful. That church will be powerful, but there are no shortcuts to getting there. Without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. So if we do not have grace in our lives, if we're not marked by people who believe the gospel, but we live lives of slavery, condemnation, and self-exaltation, our culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine of the gospel and grace will seem pointless. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Jesus is calling us just like that woman, be loosed, be free. Whatever is plaguing you, whether it's sickness, whether it's sin, whether it's strife among your brothers, be free. If you've never believed, be free. Just like this woman was loosed from her bond. She was bent to the ground and Jesus bent to loosen the bond and heal her, to bring her into a right position before God. Jesus calls us to come to him. Each of us come with our own set of burdens. But in Jesus we find rest in him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your healing touch. We thank you for your power in the gospel your power that frees us from the curse of sin and sickness. God, help us to glorify you in everything we do. Help us to bring praise to your name. God, I pray that we would be a people that exalt you and point other people to you. God, help us to be convicted where we believe in other gospel where we are still shackled to the chains of sin and slavery that you've died for and that you've thrown away. We are no longer slaves, God. Help us to be free in you. Help us to rest in you and find peace in you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.